This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Three cards this week. Card 55, 519, and 18T. This is Phil Bradley, outfielder for the Mariners and then the Phillies, and the Mariners team leaders card. All right. Three cards in one episode. Always feel so productive when we can do three cards at once. But before we get to Phil, we do have follow-up on previous episodes, and I hear that it's mascot-related. Eric R. on Facebook has sent us some great articles relevant to players that we've discussed over the years. He has an extensive back collection of old Sports Illustrateds, and so he sends pictures to me every now and again of relevant articles. But he also sent me something that is now burned into my soul. <laughs> because of our love of Nazo Nosakana, the mystery fish, Eric thought we might also like Sammy the Slammin' Salmon. And Sammy the Slammin' Salmon was the mascot of the semi-pro basketball team, the Mid-Michigan Great Lakers in Saginaw, Michigan. And they played in the Global Basketball Association against the Wichita Outlaws from your hometown in 1991-92. to Then the league disbanded 15 games into the 1992-93 season. And I included some pictures here. Matt, can you describe this nightmare fish? <laughs> this, is a, this is a very tall fish. He's got uh, spiky spiky fins coming out of the top of his head that are very strange looking his mouth is very very wide open vertically which it looks like he is about to eat completely devour this long-haired gentleman next to him in the picture he has very dead eyes as well that are on the top side of his head this is a gross looking fish his his eyes the fins I can't really tell from the pictures kind of what his outfit is, but there's a lot of look going on. There's a lot of scales on it. And I think in mascot conventions, you want to go fuzzy, not something that looks Mm. slimy. (laughs) Slimy and spiky is is no way to go through life. And this looks like a slimy fish that doesn't really look like a salmon either. I don't know. I don't like it. I hate it. I hate this fish. Yeah, thank you, Eric R., for sending this to us, but this will not join the pantheon of 1988 Tops podcast mascots. So thank you, Eric R. We also had, this doesn't count as mascot news, but it does take us into Swedish metal. So what have we got here? Thank you, at MikeGray79 on Twitter, for alerting us that Papa Emeritus IV, the lead singer of Ghost, Swedish heavy metal Catholic sacrilege cosplay band was in Chicago for the White Sox game on September 22nd. Papa Emeritus was invited to throw out the first pitch the night before they played in Peoria. So I wonder if Mike Dunn was at the Caterpillar Center to see Papa Emeritus and Mastodon play. Probably would have been a great show. The next night, Papa Emeritus came out to throw the first pitch at the Chicago White Sox game. And maybe also perform last rites on a a dying season, the 2022 White Sox season. He threw a pretty good pitch for a a Swedish gentleman who normally is dressed in Pope robes. But he went out fully in White Sox garb 
with a black and white painted face through a pretty good pitch to Liam Hendricks. So thank you, Mike Gray, for alerting us to this. And we'll have a video of that first pitch, which inexplicably was thrown to Disco Inferno instead of, a, I don't know, song by the band Ghost. If you have any clips of Guar throwing out the first pitch somewhere, we would love to see them. You can send them at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. But now let's go to our cards today. And why are we talking about Phil Bradley? Sorry, I was just Googling whether or not Guar had thrown out a first pitch recently. I didn't <laughs> find anything immediately, but I'm sure that our listeners will find something for us. I remembered that someone suggested Phil Bradley, not Bill Bradley, but then I had to search through old messages to find it. This was over two years ago, and it was the aforementioned Eric R. He suggested this card back before we had done any Mariners cards in the pre-Rake and Jonas days. He said there were two Bradleys who were Mariners teammates, and maybe we could do them both. But Phil has three cards, so we're just going to talk about Phil Bradley today. We will get to Scott at a later date. So thank you, Eric, for the suggestion, but no thank you for the soul-stealing fish picks. Yeah, let's go to the front of card 55, and I'm zooming in on the Jumbotron at full resolution, full 200%. And I have to say, David, I can barely make out Phil Bradley's face here. This is a very generic card. You have the generic Mariners mid to late 80s uniform with the M on a baseball. You have a generic blue batting helmet with a yellow S. The only good thing about this is Phil Bradley's mustache is glorious. Yeah, this this uniform is extremely generic. And David, I got to say the... The text on the baseball, on the logo, on the front is is even worse. It, it's not just an M. It's an M apostrophe S. It's an M apostrophe S. What does the M own? What on earth is happening? Who copy edited this jersey? What is the M possessing? The, the Marine? There's no reason for that. There's no reason for an apostrophe S. Just have an M. But there's no apostrophe in Mariners. And there's no need for an apostrophe in Maybe M's. it's the the full name is the Seattle Mariners baseball team, and it is the baseball mm. team is owned by the Mariners. No, but in this case it would be by the Mariner. By the Mariner. It's it's owned by the, the Seattle Mariners by the ancient, baseball team. By the team. rhyme of the ancient Mariner. That would make more sense to me than whatever is going on with this logo. But also the lighting. The lighting is very poor. It's very hard to see Phil Bradley's face. The field is brightly lit. But because of the way the sun is shining, it's very hard to see his face. And I know on the and that's on the card, but also in the digital images that pop up. So this is not a good shot. I'd say two out of ten on this on this card. So now we go to the back of fifty-five, and this looks a lot better on here. Phil Bradley, outfielder, six feet one eighty-five, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Mariners in the third round of nineteen eighty-one. Born March 11th, 1959 in Bloomington, Indiana, with a home in Columbia, Missouri. He was born in Bloomington, Indiana, but more importantly, this is our second Forgottonian. We discussed Forgottonia in the Rick Russell episode. This is the portion of Western Illinois that back in the middle of the 20th century didn't have much transportation infrastructure, and so the locals there referred to themselves as Forgottonia, this other state within a state and now this name is used by the local tourism board of Macomb, Illinois. Macomb, Illinois is where Phil grew up, also home of Forgottonia Brewing Company, 
which we'll have to take a trip out out there one of these days. Maybe we can visit some of the Rick Russell sites. I'm, I'm sure there's a plaque. <laughs> Macomb is the home of Rick Russell's alma mater, Western Illinois University. Maybe we can see the uh, the Russell brothers honorary buffet table. I'm sure that there's you know like those giant those giant Paul Bunyan statues, but there's mm. two of them and they're the Russells. Yes, at a buffet table. Phil grew up in Macomb. His parents, Pearl and Bill, not the Bill Bradley who later ran for president, but this Bill Bradley was a standout multi-sport high school and collegiate student athlete, a member of Indiana University's Big Ten Conference Championship football team in 1945 and all Big Ten Conference track team in 1947. He served in the Army in Korea, and when he got out, he got his doctorate in P.E., in 1959 from Indiana University, and 1959 is the same year that Phil was born. Over the next 10 years, the family moved around while Bill had teaching and coaching positions at several universities, including Virginia State University, Southern University, Indiana, and Fayetteville State. At Virginia State, Bill coached future big leaguer Al Bumbry, and a young Phil Bradley looked up to Al Bumbry as a, a role model while he watched his dad coach him. Bill then, in 1970, takes a job as a PE professor at Western Illinois University, and he served in that role until 1993. He passed away in 2019 at the age of 92. Pearl survived him and I believe still lives in Macomb. So from age 11, Phil is in Macomb, Forgottonia, Illinois. He spent his summers working on farms in Western Illinois, and he said, the work gets you in condition building fences, baling hay. My favorite thing was castrating hogs. We got to chase them and catch them, though I didn't do the actual cutting. And we all have different activities that we enjoyed as as a child. Phil yeah. enjoyed chasing and castrating hogs. Yeah, I liked riding my bike. <laughs> Phil also liked playing baseball and football, following in his dad's footsteps as a multi-sport athlete. He was a, a really good quarterback and a baseball player, the starting quarterback for Macomb for two seasons. The Bombers from Macomb High School went a combined 13-7 and seven in the years that he played there and qualified for the state playoffs both seasons. Phil set school records for single-game passing yardage, as well as throwing for 1,789 yards as a senior and 3,000 career passing yards for the Macomb Bombers. On the baseball field, he was a pitcher and shortstop for a team that went 46-9, and nine. That team won regional titles his junior and senior year, and he hit 550 as a junior and stole 43 bases as a senior, which were school records. Phil said he also played basketball, but for me, that was just something to do between baseball and football, I guess along with castrating hogs. <laughs> the baseball field now is named after Phil Bradley at Macomb High School to recognize his accomplishments both at the school and beyond. Phil was not drafted out of high school. He was scouted on the football field, though, and accepted a football scholarship from the University of Missouri because, first, the Tigers ran the triple option offense, similar to his high school, and also the football coach would allow him to play baseball, so gave him a double option there. The Macomb Tourism Board called Bradley the first seven-tool baseball player because he had hitting for average, hitting for power, base running, throwing ability, fielding ability, running the option, and passing a football. And 
played at Mizzou from 1977 through 1981, including appearing in 11 games as a freshman, mostly as a backup, which in those days was pretty much unheard of. And by 1978, he was the outright starter. This 1978 Mizzou team also had 1988 Tops football players, running back James Wilder and tight end Kellen Winslow. And in their final regular season game of the year, they were unranked, but they beat Number two ranked Nebraska at Lincoln, 35-31, in what was a massive Big 8 conference upset. I definitely watched more 70s Big 8 football this week than I thought I would. (laughs) (laughs) Wilder ran for four touchdowns. Winslow caught one from Bradley. This is a huge win. Denied Nebraska a shot at the national title. Mizzou got a chance to play in the Liberty Bowl, which they won over LSU, finishing the season ranked number 15. After that season, Kellen Winslow was drafted in the NFL. Bradley led the Tigers to two more winning seasons and two more bowl appearances over the next couple years. And in 1979, they were ranked as high as number five early in the season. And in 1979, they won the Hall of Fame Bowl, beating number 16, South Carolina. 1980, another winning season, but lost to Purdue in the Liberty Bowl. Bradley was a three-time Big 8 Conference Offensive Player of the Year. At one point, he held eight Missouri records for passing and total offense. He set the conference total offense record with 6,459 yards, a record that stood for 10 years. And after a senior season, he played in two All-Star games, the Hula Bowl and the Japan Bowl. He was also a pretty good baseball player. He was an outfielder on teams that won the 1980 conference championship and went to the NCAA tournaments in 1980 and 1981. He was all big eight, all district, all America in 1981, where he hit 457. Also led the team in homers with four home runs. That's not inky numbers. Not a lot of power. Certainly not inky numbers. His batting average was 362 with 10 homers over that career, and he held school records for career walks, on-base percentage, and five other school records, which he held when he graduated. Bradley said, my junior year, the baseball people were scared of the football people and didn't draft me. And then in my senior year, the football people were scared of the baseball people. And even after he was an established major leaguer, his dad told Sports Illustrated that still rankles him. There were 332 people drafted, and he wasn't one of them. The Cowboys tried to sign him as a safety or a wide receiver, but Phil wanted to play quarterback, and there really wasn't a place for an option quarterback in the early 80s NFL. Yeah, he had a chance to play in Canada for the British Columbia Lions. If he wanted to play football, he would have to report to training camp at the end of May, which is just when Canada is thawing out, just before the baseball draft happened. And so he thought maybe he would just wait and see if something would happen with baseball. And that takes us to the This Way to the Clubhouse that Phil signed as a third-round draft selection with the Mariners, June fifteenth, 1981, by scout Steve Vrablick. Steve Vrablick was born in 1919. He played briefly in the minors in the 40s in the Cubs and Sox organizations. He then went on to a 40-year scouting career, first for the White Sox and then for the Mariners. He passed away in 2008 at the age of 88. The Mariners picked Phil in the third round, a round after another quarterback, John Elway, five spots ahead of another multi-sport college athlete in Tony Gwynn. Also picked in that draft, Lenny Dykstra in the 13th round and Matt Noakes in the 20th. 
Vrablic and the Mariners signed Phil to a $25,000 signing bonus, and he went pro. Yeah, went to the minors and was a great minor league player for three seasons. In fact, the other fun fact on the card is that Phil went 340 for 1,056 for a 322 batting average at Bellingham, Bakersfield, and Salt Lake City, 1981 to 1983. This is about as thorough and detailed a fun fact as we've seen from the Topps Corporation, David. Why can't they just do the math? This is a pretty good fun fact. I think. Rather than have the lines on the card that show his three minor league seasons, they just smooshed them all into one. Adding a little bit of context, he was good at all of those levels. Yeah, he good. He hit 301 at low A Bellingham, 331 with a 452 on base percentage and 58 steals at high A. After one season at high A, jumps all the way to triple A Salt Lake City, where he hit 323. On base percentage was 100 points higher. Not a lot of power in the minors but he also had 36 steals at AAA. So all of those details aside, he was advancing quickly through the minors and earned himself a September call-up in 1983. He got his first at-bat on September 2nd as a pinch hitter for first baseman Pat Putnam. Two days later, he got his first hit, a single off of Louisiana Lightning Ron Guidry, and then was promptly caught stealing. Seems like a big no-no after getting your first hit. <laughs> this is an aggressive base runner, and the Mariners didn't have a lot going for them ever in the 80s, so they <laughs> just run. Just go for it. Just go for it. Well, he hit 269 in 23 appearances the rest of that season for a Mariners team that lost 102 games, coached by Larry Anderson's nemesis, Rene Latchman. Phil was the Mariners' regular left fielder for much of 1984. He finishes the season with a 301 average and 21 steals. Had a really strong second half, 349 batting average the second half of the season. But he had zero home runs in 322 at-bats. And he had none in 1983 either. So this is, it's very strange on the card to see goose eggs for both of those. And then to see what happened in 1985. Heading into that camp, he was expected to compete for the left field job, but he was kind of in survival mode, just trying to do what he could to stay in the big leagues, slap hitting and speed. He decided he needed to do something to up his game. He, along with hitting coach Darren Johnson, added a new element to Phil's game. Before a preseason exhibition game against the Cubs, the teams held a home run derby. Ken Phelps, my baseball people love Ken Phelps's bat. Unfortunately, he was injured and he couldn't participate in this home run derby. So Mariners hitting coach Darren Johnson says, throw Bradley in there. Teammate Dave Henderson says, what's he going to do, bunt the ball out? (laughs) Phil hit a couple homers in the derby. And then later in the game, he hit a home run off Hall of Fame closer Lee Smith. And this was kind of like a coming out party for Bradley as a power hitter. He credited hitting coach Johnson with helping him learn to pull the ball. His first year, he was afraid to try new things. He said, before this year, I was always hitting the ball down, figuring if I was going to miss, I'd miss down and have a chance to beat out the ground ball. But Johnson knew that Phil could hit because of that 300-plus average at all levels of the minors. And he also knew that he was a hard worker and he was really smart as a college quarterback. So he made some small suggestions, some small tweaks to Phil's swing that helped Bradley pull the ball and add more lift And that gave him some unexpected, to everybody but Phil and Darren Johnson, home run power. 
Yeah, after zero home runs those first two seasons and 450 plate appearances, it took him only 10 plate appearances in 1985 to hit his first career home run. And the line on this card is amazing. 26 home runs. He hit five the first month of the year and had 13 home runs at the All-Star break. And on April 13th of 1985, he did something that's only happened 32 times in Major League history. He hit an ultimate Grand Slam. The Ultimate Grand Slam is brought to you by Denny's. <laughs> this is a walk-off Grand Slam with the team trailing by three runs. So you hit a Grand Slam home run, get four runs, win the game, walk it off. Phil did that, and he also won Player of the Week for that week, for the, the week of April 13th. I'd hope so. If you hit an Ultimate Grand Slam, you should get a lot more than that. He was also hitting 310. He had taken everybody by surprise this season, including his own team, who didn't even have his name on the All-Star ballot. Thanks to his good performances, he earned that All-Star appearance thanks to the manager's selection. He struck out in his only at-bat, and it was a strike him out, throw him out, where Damaso Garcia stole second and then got caught trying to take third base when the ball got away from Ryan Sandberg. A very strange play, but the at-bat is called by Vin Scully, so at least that part of it was interesting. <laughs> Second half of that season was also very good for Phil, hitting 287, 13 homers, 12 steals. He was the best offensive player for the Mariners in 1985. 300 average, 26 homers, 33 doubles, 8 triples, 22 steals, and 88 RBIs. He had a 4.8 war, which was 10th best in the American League, 7th in batting average, 6th in hits, and the team won 74 games <laughs> for the second straight season they're sixth in the american league west it, it's a great individual season but not enough to pull up a pretty mediocre team and this team had alvin davis still they had a, a good young offensive core but just not a great team unfortunately in 1986 they fall back into last place losing 95 games phil had a low light on april 29th he was Roger Clemens' 20th and final strikeout as Clemens set the Major League record for strikeouts in a game. Phil still hit for average in 1986, 310, but his power was down. He only had 12 home runs and drove in 50. He did add 21 steals. In 1987, the Mariners are closer to 500, winning 78 games, but Seattle wouldn't have their first winning record until 1991. And David, that brings us to our second card, the 1987 Mariners Team Leaders card. This is our 10th Team Leaders card we've covered so far. We're not even halfway through all the teams. We got a, a stoic-looking card here with Harold Reynolds and Phil Bradley, both looking nonplussed. Both have good mustaches. They, they have great mustaches, but yeah, they don't look very happy. They look as if they've heard someone say something pretty stupid. Somebody reminded them that they were on the Seattle Mariners in 1987. Oof. I guess, uh, angry looks aside, these are two of the better players on this Mariners team, and two of the faces of the franchise, along with Mr. Mariner Alvin Davis. But maybe an explanation of why the Mariners weren't very good, these are two of their best players, and they're good, but they're not really superstars. But at the time, they were like two of the best players the Mariners had ever seen. They were often good players on some pretty bad teams. This is also our first appearance, or at least our first acknowledged appearance, of Mims bands. Matt, can you see Phil's left wrist? 
Yeah, I'm zooming in here on the Jumbotron, and I can't really make out what's going on there. That is Phil Bradley's own face on his wrist. Founded in 1986 by James Mims, the Mims Band was a staple of the greatest players in the 80s. The first player to use them was favorite of the pod, Dusty Baker. But they would have an embroidered autograph and maybe a quote and a likeness of the ball player's face. Over 100 Major League players, including 10 Hall of Famers, wore Mims bands. And you can kind of see a little bit of Phil's face on his wrist. Mims bands are still around. I wonder if you can get them custom made for yourself. I don't wear a wristband normally, but I might start if it you know, had my face, maybe my baby's face on it. <laughs> I'm sure she would love that. Uh, we have to, we're going to have to talk about likeness rights. We're going to have to get into some negotiations here. We missed this. You know, Matt, you'll be surprised to know that on our very first episode, we missed something about Eric Davis. Mm. He was wearing, I believe, a Mims band on his wrist in that picture. But because of the massive swing and the speed of Eric Davis's wrists, you couldn't really tell. So, you know, we, we can't be blamed for missing that one. We'll correct the episode in post. But going now to the back of 519 and the team leaders card, you see that as we really appreciate the players on the front of the card are the leaders for the team on the back of the card. Phil Bradley leading the team in five different categories here. Runs, hits, doubles, triples, and batting average. And Harold Reynolds, who's on the front of the card, leading the team in stolen bases. Mr. Mariner, Alvin Davis, led in homers and RBIs. Phil only had 14 home runs and 67 RBIs. He didn't lead the team in steals, but he did have 40. He also had 84 walks, which was 7th in the American League, to go along with that 297 average. On the pitching side, a lot of Mark Langston, and this team was pretty average on the pitching side. Mike Moore and Mike Morgan lost 19 and 17 games respectively, but both of them had average ERA pluses. So just a a team that couldn't quite put it together. And this ended a three-year stretch for Phil, where he was really one of the best offensive outfielders in the game. And that wasn't really recognized at the time, partially because he was stuck up in Seattle. His 13.5 offensive war over that stretch was eighth among outfielders, basically equal with Eric Davis and Kirby Puckett. On the defensive side, he didn't make a lot of errors, but for his time in Seattle, his range was below average. And that takes us to our third card, because in 1987, Phil was traded to the Phillies, and we go to card 18T in the traded set. We'll start with the front of the card, Phil Bradley here, again, looks like, not that he's gotten some bad news, but that he's smelled something bad. His face is kind of kind of scrunched up. He's wearing the beautiful Phillies powder blue uniform, got the red batting helmet on, the red t-shirt underneath his blue uniform. Looks pretty good. He also has a maroon belt on. I like it. I need a yeah. maroon belt. And I don't know if they corrected his Mims bands at this point. Mm. I don't know how quick that was. That's something that the quality of those Mims bands, I'm just going to go back to this. It's pretty impressive for 1986 to like have a face that looks anything like the person sewed on. I don't know. Mims bands. They're cool. Let's go to the back of 18T and go to the this way to the clubhouse that Phil was traded by the Mariners to the Phillies with pitcher Tim Fortunio for pitcher Mike Jackson, outfielder Glenn Wilson, 
and outfielder Dave Brundage, December 9th, 1987. The Phillies gave up a lot to get Phil, and they got minor league pitcher Tim Fortunio. Go back and listen to the Glenn Wilson episode to learn more about Glenn Bow and his time in Philadelphia. The Phillies gave up Mike Jackson, smooth criminal, who was 23 and coming off of his first full season. He was a very good reliever and would end up with 17 major league seasons and over 1,000 relief appearances. Brundage never made it to the big leagues, but he was a pretty good AAA outfielder for a number of years. Phil left the Mariners as the only player with 1,500 or more at-bats with a 300 average. Since then, a few have joined. Folks like Ichiro, Alex Rodriguez, Edgar Martinez. But he still has the team's fourth-best career batting average at 301. Now, why did the Phillies make this trade? Well, they had had five different regular left fielders in the previous five seasons. So they were really hoping to solidify the position by getting Phil Bradley. And here he is, a former all-star who had been hitting 300. And when he joined in 1988, he started slow, hitting 237 by the end of July. But he did have a highlight. It just doesn't show up in any box score. And this was the 8-8-88 game at Wrigley Field. The very first night game in the history of Wrigley Field, under the lights. All the broadcasters wore tuxedos, except Harry Carey, who just flat out said, no, I'm not wearing a tuxedo. He interviews Bill Murray before the game. They're both enjoying some old style. And then the leadoff man for the Phillies, Phil Bradley, against Rick Sutcliffe. But I... Where do all those lights flicker from, Arnie? All over the ballpark. Those are people with flash cameras, Harry, trying to get a piece of history here at Wrigley Field tonight. Two balls and the strike. There's the drive. Way back. It's gone. It's out of here. Sam, Phil Bradley. It's a home run. The first man up. He'll sit for another year, and he'll remember the first night game ever played at Wrigley Field, especially after that home run. Turn him off! Turn the dang lights off! This is a bomb, David. On a 2-1 count, Phil hits it out onto Waveland Avenue. Yeah, it kind of put a damper on the on the evening. Well, and then. The rain put a real damper on the evening. (laughs) The game is called off in the fourth inning, so Phil's home run just doesn't count. The game is restarted later in the year, and the first official night game in the box scores at Wrigley was the next night against the Mets. Phil ends up playing better in the second half of the season, hitting 300, but this Phillies team was pretty bad. They had 96 losses, and on the year, Phil hit 264 with 11 home runs. A year to the date after his trade from Seattle, he was sent to Baltimore. The new Philly general manager, Lee Thomas, said, We need pitching badly. I hated to give up a fine player such as Phil, but we needed pitching, starting pitching. And Baltimore was looking for a right-handed bat, so they sent Ken Howell and Gordon Dillard to the Phillies. And Howell had only just been traded to the Phillies from the Dodgers, so they just turned him right around. Baltimore didn't necessarily want to give up Ken Howell, but Philly really needed pitching and and were willing to give up Phil Bradley. Bradley ends up having a pretty good 1989, hitting in the two spot ahead of Cal Ripken Jr. 277, 11 homers, 20 steals. While he never got back to that 1985 
home run total, he did have a 124 OPS plus, which was his highest since 1986. This Orioles team won 87 games, and it was the first time in Phil's career that he was on a winning team. 1990 was the final year of Phil's contract. He missed 20 games in June and July with a wrist injury, and he was in contract negotiations. He wanted a three-year deal, $5 million. The Orioles offered him one year. (laughs) Phil was disappointed, humiliated by the contract offer, and said he would seek free agency after the season, and that left the Orioles no choice. He was hitting 270 with four home runs on July 30th, when the Orioles traded him to the White Sox for Ron Kittle. This trade was a bust for both teams. They both had kind of disappointed players. Ron Kittle went out in a blaze of glory, throwing everyone under the bus as he left Chicago. But then he was back the next year as a free agent. So, you know, he mended those those fences. Phil had also burned some bridges. He was the Orioles just needed to get rid of him because he, he said he was going to be a free agent. So they wanted to get something. And what they got was a 164 batting average from Ron Kittle in 22 games. The White Sox got a 226 average from Phil Bradley in 45 games. And he filed for free agency after the 1990 season. Yeah, it seems like they should have just let them play out the rest of their year instead of trading them in such a stupid way. They both end up free agents. And... Bradley receives no offers, but he did get an offer from the Yomiuri Giants in Japan. They signed him to a one-year deal worth $2 million, and he delivered. He hit 282 with 21 home runs and 70 RBIs. And after that season in Japan, he decides to try one more time in Major League Baseball. He signs with the Expos, and he competed with a young Moises Alou for the final outfield spot. He would have made $200,000 if he made the team, but there was an impression that Phil didn't get along with management, but all of his teammates loved him from his previous teams. This was his sixth team in six years. He played okay, but ended up cut out of spring training. Alou made the team, went on to finish second in the Rookie of the Year voting in 1992, and had a great career. Phil signs on with a AAA deal for the Angels and then the Cubs, doesn't ever get called up and calls it a career at age 33 after the 1992 season. So closing the book on Phil Bradley, eight seasons in the major leagues, 286 batting average, 1,058 hits, 78 home runs, 43 triples, 155 steals, and 21 homers in NPB. Speaking about the home run that didn't count at Wrigley Field on the first night game, Phil said, I don't count it. I only count it in that in my professional career in the big leagues in Japan, I ended up with 99 home runs, so that would have been 100. He also had one all-star appearance and three straight Big 8 Offensive Player of the Year awards. How about in retirement? Not a lot of our players can claim any Big 8 Offensive Player of the Year awards. Take that, Inky. In retirement, Phil went into coaching at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, where he also taught sports history. That allowed him time to coach his son, Kurt, and to watch his daughter, Megan, play tennis. Megan would go on to play tennis at Miami and was a professional tennis player for a couple years. Kurt was a multi-sport athlete like his dad and grandpa. He played baseball and football at the University of Northern Iowa, and he was actually only 18 days old when his dad played in that 1985 All-Star game, and I believe he was there in the stands as a tiny baby. He ended up drafted in the 33rd round in 2006 and spent one season in the Dodgers minor league system. Phil was later a volunteer assistant to the Mizzou softball team, 
And he, as a player, had been heavily involved with the Players Union as a rep and now works for the Major League Baseball Players Association, where he is a special assistant to the executive director in charge of eight teams, including the St. Louis Cardinals. He said, I'm basically a union rep. I visit the teams every few weeks during the season to keep in touch with the players and see what's going on. A good job that keeps him relatively close to home and allows him to volunteer as an assistant to the Mizzou softball team. We have a player who was an amazing star in college in both baseball and football. Ended up having a pretty decent career in the majors and in Japan. Now, after looking at him a little bit more, what do we think? Phil is in the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. His number 15 is retired by the Tigers baseball team. He also wore the number 15 on the football field. That number has not been retired, at least not yet. A 2011 Bleacher Report list had him as one of the 40 most overrated hitters. I don't think that a lot of people spend much time thinking about Phil Bradley at all, let alone rating him highly, but whatever. These lists are just, they're clickbait. But he was a really good hitter, especially in those years for the Mariners. Between 1985 and 1989, among players with 2,000-plus plate appearances, he had the 33rd highest OPS plus at 124. Over that same stretch, he's valued at 20.1 offensive wins above replacement, and that's 21st overall, in the same range as Will Clark, Dale Murphy, Howard Johnson, Kirk Gibson, MVP caliber players. He was a 300 hitter with decent power and speed, and if he had consistently had that 1985 power, he would have been a regular all-star. Instead, he hit a lot of doubles and triples and hit for good average and was off on an island in Seattle where not many people, including the team's ownership, cared about the team. He remains in the top 10 for Mariners all-time players in batting average, on-base percentage, triples, steals, and OPS+. And this is really a name that I remembered because when you look at the back of that card, you see a career 301 average, you see 40 stolen bases, and a season with 26 home runs. That told me that this guy was important. And then he was actually deservingly on the 1987 team leaders card. He was a pretty good player for a team that was often very bad. And so I I guess I had in my head an image of a good player, maybe an all-star caliber player. I did not expect to learn about his football career and dive down into 1970s Big 8 football territory. But this is a really impressive athlete and somebody with good power and good speed and a name that uh, I'm glad we learned more about. A really good story and a, and a good career, and plus a chance to walk down memory lane with the, with the Big 8 football. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If, if you have a picture of your own face on your wristband, take a picture and send it to us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.